The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I'm very nostalgic this week as I was preparing this message. Looking at this passage in Galatians 3, you're welcome to turn there as I sort of ramble a little bit here by way of introduction. Um, I was feeling very nostalgic I was looking at the date in this book, and it says 1999, and some of you weren't even born yet. And uh, this was a book that I was 25 years old, and I took a class in soteriology from Frank Griffith, and um, he assigned this book as a textbook, and it's John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which is where I stole the title for the sermon, um, and I remember, I grew up in church, I grew up as a church kid, I grew up in a church that preached the word. I was blessed, Steve Fernandez was my pastor, and he would, he would preach it. Oh, we called it explosatory preaching, because it came not just verse by verse, but it came in much, so much power, you were pinned to the back of your seat for most of the sermon. And I knew, I had heard all about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I had heard about redemption. We sang these songs that were so theologically rich that it was like a sermon in the song. Kind of like how we sing. And I remember taking this class at 25, and you know how young men are. I was a little bit proud, thought I knew all there was to know about this subject. And I began to read this book, and I was blown away by how much I didn't know. I didn't even know what I didn't know. You know how that is? Like you think you know, and then you realize, man, there is a whole thing. I didn't even know how much I didn't know. And I just wanted to read a little bit of it by way of introduction, because this doctrine of redemption, of course, this word redemption, it comes right out of the slave market. I mean, that picture is huge. It's the picture that was used in the Old Testament of God redeeming his people out of Egypt, buying them out of bondage. And he did it through this exodus event and through the blood that was put on the lentils. There was a passing over so that the firstborn wasn't killed. And there's a greater exodus. There's a greater event that happened in history, and it was at the cross. We sing about this all the time. We we heard it in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord who redeems my life from the pit. But I remember reading this book and being blown away. And by the way, um, we are blessed. You know, Scripture, Paul tells Timothy that the elders who rule well should be worthy of double honor. That means you ought to pay them and you ought to give them honor and respect as elders in that context because he says the worker's worthy of its wages and don't mule the ox while he's being muzzled. And so, and so there's this sense in which you give them honor as those who are elders among you, but you also, those who preach and teach that labor at this, you're to, if you can, pay them. And that's double honor. And, and Frank Griffith has been a huge blessing. He started this church to preach the word in this community. And here we are 19 years later, we're thriving and flourishing and there's fruitfulness and and I get to sit in the office with him and hear all of the fruitfulness of him not just training me but training all sorts of men all over the country who call him and ask his advice and he doesn't ever boast about it he doesn't ever talk about it and he'll go and and spend time and 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 disciple men and and raise them up to be pastors and teachers who love the word and who love the people and who want to serve them 
And so next time you see him, you be sure to tell him he's worthy of double honor. So anyway, he, he gave me this book as an assignment, and I love this first sentence in the book. He says, it's chapter one, the necessity of the atonement. And John Murray writes, the accomplishment of redemption is concerned with what has generally been called the atonement. No treatment of the atonement can be properly oriented that does not trace its source to the free and sovereign love of God. So he starts, and I love this, he doesn't start with definitions of atonement or redemption, which he will get to. He says it has its source in the love of God. It is with this perspective that the best-known text in the Bible provides us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here we have an ultimate of divine revelation and therefore of human thought. That's how he starts. And then he goes on to say about this redemption as he says, this redemption... That it is an ultimate of human thought does not exclude, however, any further characterization of this love of God. The scripture informs us that this love of God from which the atonement flows and of which it is the expression is a love that's distinguishing. So he says it's a distinguishing love. No one gloried in this love of God more than the Apostle Paul. Romans 5.8, God commendeth his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to say, it's this love, to, it is necessary to underline this concept of sovereign love. Truly, God is love. Love is not something adventitious. I got a PhD. I had to look that word up last night. It's not something left to chance. It's not something that God may choose to be or choose not to be. He is love. And that necessarily, inherently, and eternally. As God is spirit, as he is light, so he is love. Yet it belongs to the very essence of electing love to recognize that it is not inherently necessary to love to that love which God necessarily and eternally is. So God is love, he says, but it's not necessary. It didn't, God was under no compulsion that he should set such love as issues in redemption and adoption upon utterly undesirable and hell-deserving objects. He didn't have to set his love upon us. And he goes on to say that the cross of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. Romans 5, 8 and 1 John 4, 10. The supreme character of the demonstration resides in the extreme costliness of the sacrifice rendered. Romans eight thirty two. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The costliness of the sacrifice assures us of the greatness of the love and guarantees the bestowal of all other free gifts. Now that's redemption accomplished. That's the first half of his book. And he just unpacks all of that. Then he gets into the second half of the book and he talks about redemption applied. And he says when we think of the application of redemption, we must not think of it as one simple and indivisible act. It comprises a series of acts and processes. To mention some, we have calling, we have regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. These are all distinct and not one of these can be defined in terms of the other. Each has its own distinct meaning, function, and purpose in the action and grace of God. And the rest of the chapters unpack each of those words. And I was blown away. 
there is a facet, a, a myriad, a shape to this atonement that is, it is just wonderful. I remember growing up and every um, Lord's Day uh, Sunday night when we celebrated the Lord's table, Steve Fernandez would preach on the cross of Christ. And I thought, man, you would get bored of that. After 20 years of growing up under that, you would think you'd heard it all. But there is so many riches in this atonement. So many things to speak of, justification and calling and regeneration and adoption and propitiation and sanctification and glorification. And then the thing that was really the clincher that really just blew me away is he says, at the end of the the book, he says, all of this is under the umbrella of union with Christ. Union with Christ. He writes, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. All to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God. All that has been secured and procured for them in the once for all accomplishment of redemption. All of which they become the actual partakers in the application of redemption. And all that by God's grace they will become in the state of consummated bliss that is in heaven is embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. And he goes on to conclude, this union with Christ, he says, is is Trinitarian in shape. Believers know the Father and have fellowship with Him in His own distinguishing character and operation as the Father. They know the Son and have fellowship with Him in His own distinguishing character and operation as the Son, the Savior, Redeemer, and Exalted Lord. They know and have fellowship with the Holy Spirit in his own distinguishing character and operation as the Spirit, the Advocate, the Comforter, the Sanctifier. It is not the blurred confusion of rapturous ecstasy. It is faith solidly founded on the revelation deposited for us in the Scripture, and it is faith actively receiving that revelation by the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. But it is also faith that stirs the deepest springs of emotion in the raptures of holy love and joy. Believers enter into the holy of holies of communion with the triune God. And they do so because they've been raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.6 Their life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 They draw nigh in full assurance of faith having their hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and their bodies washed with pure water because Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for them. Now that was a summary of everything we have in Christ. All that we have. And and that might have been a little bit over your head and that's okay because it was over my head when I first read it. And I've been spending all of my ministry life trying to understand this work of the atonement. That the Father so loved the world He gave His Son. And what was accomplished at the cross was a redemption. It was a purchasing of us. As Colossians 1 says, the Father, he, he delivered us out of the domain of darkness and He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. And in that context, He says, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is what all eternity, Ephesians says, as the ages roll on one upon another to another, The Father's going to be revealing His mercy and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? We'll never get over learning about how wonderful this work is. And and I get the privilege of preaching and teaching it. 
And, and this morning in Galatians 3, I want you to hear, it's one of those passages, the reason I spent so much time unraveling how glorious and wonderful this is, is because this is what we have and receive by faith alone in Christ alone, plus nothing This is why Paul is going to be so worked up and angry that the Galatians had turned away from this. And I'm not mad at you when I do this sermon. Paul was mad at them. I'm not mad at you. And so I wanted to present to you this glorious redemption and all that it is, and very brief by way of introduction, because we're going to get into a passage that Paul is angry So let's read Galatians 3 together, verses 1 to 14. And just by way of reminder, I know I'm adding another caveat. He calls them brothers in chapter 4. He's not so angry with them that he's decided he's done with them and he's going to commit bloodless murder and, and just cut them out of his life and never talk to them again. He loves them. His heart is for them. He He... They're like his children, and he wants to see them go the right way. And he sees them going the wrong way, and this is such a wrong way, it's going to lead into potential heresy and idolatry and abandoning of the gospel. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. He is worked up. And rightly so. Rightly so. Because as we had talked about, there were these Judaizers, these... um, Jewish uh, Christians from Jerusalem that had come up into Galatia, the province of Galatia, and they had begun to teach that if you really want to be a true spiritual Christian and you really want to grow and you really want to be like Jesus, you need to keep the Mosaic Law. You need to honor the Sabbaths and the full moons and the dietary restrictions and be circumcised, etc. And Paul hears this. 
And there had already been some discussion and confrontation about this. And he hears this and he says, this is not how you receive the Lord Jesus. How did you receive him? It wasn't by keeping the law. In fact, by keeping the law, no one is righteous. Everybody's condemned. You received Christ by faith. And you were declared righteous. Now you live the same way by faith. And so they had begun by faith, but now they were trying to continue by works. And so he says, I got some questions for you. Verses 1 to 5, there's six questions here. He says, let me ask you a couple things here, Galatians. And this reminds me of uh, some of the uh, teaching style of professors or even perhaps your parents if you've ever been uh, done something really dumb. And your parents sat you down and they began to ask you questions. He says, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you is the first question, verse uh, 1. Who has convinced you of a fantasy? You are not living in the real world. Who has hypnotized you is the idea. It's the only time this word is used in the, in the Bible, this uh, word here for bewitched or hypnotized. or uh, uh, it, it was an idea of someone had cast a spell on them. It was used in other literature. They've been hoodwinked. But here he says to them, you're being foolish. So you were hoodwinked willingly. You, you didn't go into this with your eyes closed. You weren't taken advantage of. You embraced this willingly. And you have been bewitched and hypnotized. So in other words, they're not lacking in IQ. They're lacking in spiritual discernment. He says, you've been bewitched. And what is it? That, that they've been bewitched and, and seduced, uh, hypnotized away from. He says, verse 1, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He was placarded. He was publicly be- put before your mind's eye. You weren't there in Jerusalem outside the gates. At Golgotha when Jesus was crucified. But when you embraced Christ by faith, it was so vivid in your mind's eye, you saw it occur. And you believed it. And Paul says, this is the message I brought to you. He tells the Corinthians the same thing. He says, I determined to know nothing among you in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verse 2, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In fact, he had said in chapter 1 to the Corinthians that the word of the cross, the word about the event of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. And we can say amen to that, right? In your own experience, wasn't that how it was when you embraced Christ? It was as if the history was pulled back and you saw the Lord of glory crucified for you. You embraced him as your Savior and your Lord. And you knew he was dying as your substitute. You knew he was dying in your place. You deserve to be the one crucified. And yet he died for you so that you could become a child of God. This is why Paul's so worked up. He says, you know this. And you're abandoning this. Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And that word, when it says he's publicly portrayed as crucified, there's a, there's a tense, a verb tense in Greek that we don't have in English. It's called the perfect tense. 
It means something happened in the past, but there's ongoing effects into the present of, of the writer. And he says, this, this event of the cross when Christ was placarded before your eyes is crucified, it happened in the past and it was finished in the past, but there's ongoing effects into the present tense. He says, you knew that it was a done deal and everything was paid for. And when Christ said it was finished, it was finished. There was nothing more to add. And now you're bewitched and turning away. And lest we think um, that we're immune to this, there are so many times in our Christian life where we know we're saved by faith, but we get it in our heads that somehow in order to earn God's favor in our Christian life, we have to do all these good works. And maybe we don't think of them as good works, maybe we just think of them as a checklist i got to check these boxes in my life or else God will be unhappy with me. And it may not be the Jewish works of the law, but it is the American works of Facebook and all of the advice you see in your feed. Man, I, I think you poor women in our church, you are under such assault by social media. How you ought to feed your kids and raise your kids and clothe your kids and how you ought to educate your kids and all of those things and it's like if man if I make a wrong decision here I must be under the wrath of God because man how dare I feed them that thing that wasn't you know here in California it's got to be organic you know steroid free whatever and those things are good right I mean we want to feed but that is first world problems There's plenty of Christians who have said, give us this day our daily bread, and the daily bread they received was rotten and moldy, and they were grateful to God, right? They weren't under his wrath because they, anyway, I don't want to go down that trail. But we as Christians can do that. We can buy into this this worldview or this culture that says, if you really want to be pleasing to God, you got to do this. A couple generations ago, it was don't, Go to the movies and don't play cards and don't drink and chew and go with girls that do. And so we're not immune to this. And we shouldn't think we're above this because we're told in Scripture, take heed when you're standing lest you fall. Pride comes before a fall, doesn't it? So we want to be humble. We want to constantly go back to the cross, go back to the gospel, preach it again to our hearts. Remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and then live out of that. And the good works we do will not be in order to earn God's favor. It will be done in response to all of this that he's done for us to make us favorable to him, to make us righteous in his eyes. And so he says, who's bewitched you? Spurgeon on this passage says, it's as good to say, quote, I have set Christ before you as plainly as if I had printed a great notice and stuck it up before your eyes. I'd put the letters down in capitals. Paul says, as a king, when he makes a proclamation, puts it on the walls and calls attention to it, so I have set forth Christ before you. I've not talked of him in a mystical way so that you did not know what I meant, but I set him forth. I've said of him that he suffered in our stead, in our place, and was made a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He says, could I have made it any plainer? Jesus Christ died in our place 
to pay for our sin, even though he didn't commit any sin. And when God poured out his wrath upon the son, that sin payment was satisfactory. It was paid in full. So now we receive salvation by faith by embracing the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're brought into the family of God. That's the good news of the gospel. Because Jesus was crucified. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 says. Paul says, I I didn't couch it in mystical terms. I said it before you plainly. So then he asks the second question. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? How did you receive the Spirit? Was it by obeying the law or was it by believing what you heard? And of course the answer is, well, by believing what I heard. That's what he's trying to, well, duh, yeah. In other words, he says in verse 2, let me get this straight. That's what, let me ask you only this. Let me get this straight. When you receive the Spirit... When you saw his power and his presence manifested among you, was that by believing or by obeying the law? And why would you then turn from believing to trying to obey the law? He says in verse 2. And, and notice he ties the Spirit to this. So he had earlier in chapter 2 tied justification that you're declared righteous to this, and now he ties the, the receiving of the Spirit, what we would call regeneration to this. Two parts of this union with Christ. Christ for us, justifying us and declaring us righteous. A legal term, a courtroom language. And then Christ in us, by the power of the Spirit, that we're born again to a living hope, and so we're no longer the same and we're changed. We have a new identity And we're declared righteous and we have a new nature where we're being made righteous by the indwelling spirit. Paul says you receive both of those by faith in union with Christ. And now you're going to try to obey the law. And so he says the third question, are you so foolish? This action is returning from maturity to immaturity. (laughs) And of course they would want to say, well, no. I'm not so foolish. And he would say, well, yes, you are by your actions. That's why the next question, after beginning with the Spirit, verse 3, are you now trying to attain your goal with human effort? Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul points out these two opposing routes to redemption. Grace and faith, that's in chapter 2, versus law and works. Are you going to be Receive redemption by grace and faith or law and works. Now he says it in this verse in a different way. The power of the Spirit versus human effort. Are you going to live in the power of the Spirit because you received the Spirit at the beginning of your salvation? Are you now going to try to do it by human effort? Sola bootstrappa. Picture yourself up by your bootstraps alone. and It's like Nike theology, right? Just do it. He says, why would you do that that's being foolish? And when he says flesh here, he's not just talking about our bodies. He's talking about this human nature. All of our work that, that we did before regeneration where we, we tried to please God. It's this, this idea of human effort apart from the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. In fact, over in Philippians 1.6, turn over there real quick. I know you guys know this verse. 
But look at what he says here in the context of salvation. Philippians uh, 1, 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The he who there is the Father, he's the one who began a good work in the Philippians. And he's going to begin it, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So this good work will be finished when Christ returns. And here we don't have the Spirit in this verse, but here in Philippians, you have the Spirit in verse 19. The help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will turn out for Paul's deliverance. Over in chapter 2, verse 1, he says there is a communion, a participation in the Spirit. He goes on to say in chapter 3 that we, verse 3, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so throughout the book of Philippians, the Father begins this work by giving us the indwelling Spirit, and now we are in communion and participation in the Spirit so that we, now as we live out our lives, we are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we don't put any confidence in the flesh. This is what he's talking about over back in Galatians. So the one who began the good work, in fact, it's the same words of beginning and completion, that we see back in Galatians 3.3. 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being completed, perfected by the flesh? Of course, the answer is no. I'm not being perfected by human effort. I'm being perfected by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul said back in Galatians 2.20. Turn back to 2.20. He says... I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But it's Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's this wonderful paradox of the Christian life that we've been crucified and so we don't live. Christ lives in us. But now the life we do live, under this new identity, with this new nature of the indwelling ministry of the Spirit, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. And so then he says, verse 4 of chapter 3, the next question, have you suffered so much for nothing? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He says, what you've undergone so far in your Christian life, in your life for Christ, has it been for nothing? Jesus Christ suffered. We're identified with him. He left us an example to follow in his footsteps. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. He said, you Galatians, we don't know what they suffered. We have no history that they were under any sort of persecution. But Paul says to them, you've suffered in the life of Christ. As you've been living for Christ, you've suffered. Has it been for nothing? And of course they would say, well, no, it's been for something. He says, why then would you turn to the law? And finally, he says, did the Father give you his spirit or work miracles among you because you obeyed the Mosaic law or because you believed what you heard? Verse 5 of chapter 3. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In fact, he had told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, 
the Spirit gives life. That's his way of saying the Mosaic law doesn't give life, it kills. What gives life, the one who gives life, I should say, is the Holy Spirit. And so he's going to conclude. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Let's just get to his conclusion here. Galatians 5 verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So he said, it's not as if now you're living by faith and you don't actually do any works. He says, that's not the issue. It's not like faith or works. He's saying you were saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Now you're trying to earn God's favor and become a super spiritual Christian by obeying the Mosaic law, Galatians. You're wrong. You started by faith. You walk by faith. And in Galatians 5.25, he says, this is what it looks like. If we live by the Spirit, we're going to keep in step with the Spirit. And that picture of keeping in step is we're going to be ruled by the Spirit. We are going to follow His desires, His will for our life. The indwelling ministry of the Spirit is to produce in us Fruit, which he says in Galatians 5, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. He's going to produce fruit in us. He's going to produce life in us. There'll be signs of life because we're alive in Christ. We're not a corpse. And what that fruit looks like is it looks like good works. That's why James says faith without works is dead. So it's not an issue of Simply faith in works, it's an issue of relying upon those works to earn God's favor. Either for initial salvation when we're converted, or in the Christian life, as we walk day by day for our sanctification and eventually our glorification, that we think that we have to do all of these good works in order to meet God's approval. The reason why Paul is going to say this is so dangerous in chapter 4 is that this misunderstands the character and the love of God. He says in Galatians 4 that we receive adoption as sons, and when we receive adoption, we receive the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. And our Christian life ought to be a life that's not ruled by slavish obedience to the law, but a loving obedience to God our Father. There's a big difference. (laughs) Big difference. It would be like me saying to my wife, well, we had our 21st anniversary last Friday, and I bought you these flowers because it's my duty to do so as a husband. It's what I'm supposed to do. Took you down to Monterey because that's the right thing to do. And so I'm hoping that I've won your approval and your favor by taking you down to Monterey and buying you breakfast and walking along the beach and going into those little shops with potpourri and whatever else. Right? No, of course not. No, the reason I did all those things is because I've been married to my wife for 21 years and I love her. It brought me joy to do it. I love to be with her. I love to see her smile. I love to see her Have joy. It's more blessed to give than to receive. This is the same way with our salvation. The reason we do this is because we love the Father. 
We love the Son. We love the Spirit. We love our triune God who's done this work for us. And the reason we love is because He first loved us. That's what Paul's getting at. That's how we need to think about this and apply this to ourselves today. If we were going to ask these questions to ourselves is, what is our motive in the Christian life? Why are we living day by day? Why am I reading my Bible? Why am I praying if I am? Why am I coming to church? Why am I listening to this sermon? Why am I reading this Christian book? Why am I doing it? Am I doing it out of some sense of duty? Because I have to earn God's favor? You're being foolish and bewitched. Or am I doing it out of a delight and love for my God who has saved me and redeemed me? The father who so loved the world, he gave his son. The son who was willing, willingly, joyfully came to sacrifice himself because he loved us and gave himself for us. And the spirit of God who makes real this love in our hearts by indwelling us forever. I don't know your heart. I could never pretend to even judge your motives. But the Lord does. And let me tell you this, those times in my life where my motive has been wrong, it is the most miserable times of my existence. It is. There is no joy in pure duty. None. And what God says is at his right hand is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Paul said to the Ephesians, oh, that you would know the love of God, how high and wide and deep and long it is. Why? So that you'd be filled with the fullness of God. See, God's glory and our joy are not at odds. And there is no secret to the Christian life. There's no upper level, as it were, this two-tier Christianity, which is what the Judaizers were saying. There's simply this. The finished work of Jesus Christ accomplished for us, applied to us by the Holy Spirit of God in His indwelling ministry, and us responding to that in joyful love and affection. That's it. By grace through faith. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And that's what we need to constantly be evaluating in our own lives. Church kid, if you've grown up in this church and you think that the only reason God's going to be happy with you is if you fill out that checklist that you think your parents have invented of reading your Bible and praying and going to church, you will never embrace the gospel. You will say with your lips that you believe it and you'll go into college and you'll wander away. But the good news of the gospel is there is a God in heaven who loves you and who gave his son for you. And he offers you hope in Christ where you could have life that is life abundantly and full of joy and without regret. And so come to Christ. Embrace him as your Lord and Savior. Not because your parents tell you it's a duty to do so, but because the God of glory is holding out this gift of life to you as a treasure and all you have to do is receive it by faith. Paul says that's how you begun, by the Spirit. That's how you began this, completed by the Spirit. Well, then he gives the example in verse 6 of Abraham. And I don't know if I'll get through my sermon. 
He says, Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Just as the Father supplied the Spirit and miracles among the Galatians in verse 5, so too Abraham was justified by faith. In verse 5 he says this phrase, does he who supplies the Spirit to you, the Father, and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And of course the answer would be by hearing with faith. So he says, hey, in that same way of by hearing with faith, that was the same way that Abraham was justified. Abraham believed God concerning the promises. Well, what was the promise Abraham was given? Back in Genesis 12, it was, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants like the stars. And I'm going to bless every nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And we, we see, we hear in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God concerning these promises and he was declared righteous. Well, why is this important to Paul? Why does he bring up Abraham? I mean, these are Gentiles. These aren't Jewish Christians who said they had Abraham as their father. Why in the world would he bring up Abraham here? Well, I think the reason is, is because Abraham was declared righteous before the Mosaic law was ever given. Abraham was a Gentile, as it were. He was a pagan who lived in the land of Ur, of the Chaldees. He worshiped pagan gods. And God delivered him and brought him out of that land and promised to give him the promised land in Israel. And Abraham believed God and obeyed. He says, Gentiles, just like Abraham believed God apart from the law, you too believe God apart from the law. And for all of us here, or most of us anyway, I I know of one a Jewish person in our congregation. But we're all Gentiles. And so we receive the same gospel the same way. And so he says, the promise of redemption was given to Abraham before the law. And then he says in verses 7 to 14, all of the nations are redeemed in Christ. Redeemed in Christ and therefore are heirs of Abraham. Verses 7 to 9 Know then that it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What an amazing thought. The gospel, the good news, was promised to Abraham. Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promises of God concerning the Messiah. Now, they didn't know who the Messiah was. We know it's Jesus, the Son of God. But that Abraham believed the promises of God, that one of his children, one of his descendants, would be the Messiah and restore everything that was lost in the garden. And the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, and Abraham believed it. And the Judaizers in Galatia were probably saying, if you want to be a real son of Abraham, because you know This message came from the Jews. It came to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. If you want to be a real son of Abraham, you got to keep the Mosaic law. That would sound pretty compelling if I was a Gentile living at that time. But Paul says, is it those who rely on the law or those who rely on faith? Paul says, like Abraham did, relying on faith makes you a true son of Abraham, a spiritual descendant of Abraham. 
In fact, he goes on to say in verses 10 to 12, those who are under the Mosaic law are cursed. You don't want to go under that thing because you're cursed. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. It's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law, in the book of the law to do them. Paul lays the stress on the fact that all of the law must be obeyed for a person not to fall under a curse. The argument of the Judaizers must have been that the one who faithfully lives his life in accordance with the law of Moses would be righteous before God. But Paul says, hey, let me quote you their own passages. Deuteronomy 27, 26. No one is able to do all that the law requires. Therefore, everyone is under a curse. In fact, the law was never intended to justify. We're ahead of the argument, but in chapter 4, he demonstrates that the law was just a jailer. It was just a, a steward, a keeper until Christ came. It wasn't meant to justify. Well, then in verse 11, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, and he says, Now it's evident no one is justified before God by the law, for the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. Righteousness can only be attained by faith. The law has to do with doing and living by its commands. Therefore, the law is not of faith, Paul says. So in verse 12, he says, The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, you want to embrace that Mosaic law? You better keep it all. You better live by it. And oh, by the way, you can't live by it. So you're under a curse. Why would you want to put yourself back under a curse? Well, then he finishes with this wonderful passage here. He says, this is the heart of the issue. As compelling as it sounds, that you have to keep this law in order to find favor with God and be pleasing to him, he says, let me tell you the reality of the cross. This is what happened. Christ, the Lord Jesus, redeemed us from the curse of the law. He bought us out of the slave market, as it were, out from under this curse. Well, how did he do it? He did it by becoming a curse for us. He was not accursed. In fact, he's the only one who ever obeyed the law perfectly. He obeyed it perfectly, fulfilling all righteousness. He was even baptized by John when he didn't need to be to, he didn't need to be baptized. But he did it to fulfill all righteousness, he says to John. And he became a curse for us. And then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The goal of Christ's work at the cross was a redemption. What he did at the cross was he knew he was buying a people out of slavery by paying a price. And the price he paid was his own blood. His substitutionary death. And the means he did it was becoming a curse for us. And the evidence is that he was crucified on a tree. Publicly displayed as a curse. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was stripped naked and he was nailed to a tree for all of the world to see. Anybody who walked by could see him as a curse. And he didn't deserve it. And the reason he did it 
was to be a curse for us. For us. He took our place as our substitute. And Paul says he did it so that, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, you know that blessing that was promised way back in Genesis? So that that blessing might come to us, the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Paul says, hey, redemption means we get justification and redemption means we get the spirit. Why would you ever want to go back under a curse? Why? Timothy George in his commentary in Galatians writes, through pardon and acquittal, Christ has removed our condemnation. And that means we have justification. He has also set us free from the power of sin and death. This redemption, and he bestowed upon us a new life in the spirit, regeneration. The good news of how this has happened and what it means, Paul calls gospel. And he calls blessing. Now, for the first time, he introduces a new word, promise which both reaches back to the gospel of grace revealed in the blessing of Abraham and looks forward to the new life of liberty and love to which those who are in Christ have been called. You see, the good news about this promise is that all of God the Father's promises are yes and amen in Christ. So when God promised to Eve in Genesis 3 that he would send a descendant of Eve who would crush the serpent's head, when he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, that a descendant of Abraham's would, through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed? When he promised to David that he would seat one of David's descendants upon the throne forever and that that kingdom would never end? When he promised to the people of God through the prophets that he would send an ideal servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities? When he promised that there would be the pouring out of the Spirit so that we would actually have new life and the law of God would no longer be written on tablets of stone but tablets of the human heart. When God promised that he would make all things new and he would restore what was lost in the garden, he fulfilled it in Christ. Christ is the yes and amen of all of God's promises. And now for us who are living on this side of the cross, we have these promises That we're going to receive the adoption, our inheritance. As sons and daughters of God, we're going to live with God forever on a new earth. And he's going to be in our midst. And Christ is going to be in our midst. And the indwelling spirit is going to be in our midst. And he promises he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death and no more crying. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more sin. When he promises that that we are going to be made into a house fitting for the presence of God, a spiritual temple. When he promises that for all eternity we're going to be continually learning about the grace and kindness of God in Christ towards us, we can be sure that all of those promises are yes and amen. He'll never abandon us. He'll never forsake us. He'll never leave us. And that's not just wishful thinking. That is hope that will never be put to shame. You might be here this morning and you don't know if you could believe those promises because what's going on in your life is so broken and messed up that you you don't even want to dare to hope anymore. What you need is you need to get a glimpse 
of Jesus Christ placarded, publicly displayed before your eyes. You need to see that he actually finished the work he started. That God accepted that sacrifice at the cross. That he paid the full penalty of sin. That you are accepted. You are brought near. You are brought near to God the Father in Christ. That he's not abandoned you as an orphan. He has not turned his back on you. Why? Because he turned his back on his son. He embraces you. He draws near. He says, draw near to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus said, and I'll give you rest. That's what you need to do this morning. You need to come to Christ. You need to remember him. Rejoice in him and may it bring joy to your heart to know that God will fulfill all his promises. And you can walk by faith in delight of this one who loved you so much he gave a son. Not merely in the duty of a slave, but the affection of a son or a daughter of God. Father, thank you for this word. This is the, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the hope we have. And I, I don't know everything that's going on in this dear flock. I don't know circumstances and, and, and things they're going through, Father, but you do. And you love them. So, Father, I pray that these words would, would, would just pierce the heart this morning, that they would bring consolation and hope and joy to my brothers and my sisters. And for those who are, who are walking in joy and confidence, may it just be a hearty amen to the life that is lived by faith alone, by grace alone in Christ alone. We want to sing now. We want to respond to this. We want to worship you. It's a fitting response to everything you've done. It's what we were created to do. And so may our worship be out of hearts that are full of joy and hope in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.